So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week, our guest is TV showrunner, writer, and former music talent scout Brian Koppelman. From the beginning, Brian knew he could use his love for music to create unforgettable moments on his Showtime series, Billions. It's incredible, but it, it does feel like a lifetime's pursuit of loving music so much. Plus, we'll review new music from country artist Amanda Shires and the soundtrack to the film Sorry to Bother You. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later we're going to talk with the showrunner of the Showtime series Billions, Brian Koppelman, about working in the music business and how he chooses the music for his TV shows and movies. But first, some new music. That is a little bit of Monsoon from the Sorry to Bother You soundtrack featuring a cameo, Greg, by Killer Mike. This might be confusing, listeners, so pay attention. (laughs) Way back in 2012, The Coup from Oakland, California, released an album called Sorry to Bother You. They have been going since the early 90s, led by an indefatigable, multi-talented force Mm -hmm. named Boots Riley. Uh, You know, he's always had this political consciousness, paying tribute to activists new and old. One of their albums was Steal This Album, Mm -hmm. nodding at Abby Hoffman. And we didn't know this. When he put out the Sorry to Bother You album in 2012, he had a screenplay for a film, but he couldn't get the film made until now. Big hit. In a lot of ways, it matches Get Out as this year's big satire and commentary on race, but it's even weirder and funnier. So Boots has always had a lot to say. For the soundtrack, he uh, collaborated with, among others, Janelle Monet, Killer Mike, and fellow Oakland resident Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards. It's a work that's well worth listening to. Let's hear a tune from it. This is Hey Saturday Night, Boots Riley and the Coup collaborating with Tune Yards on the Sorry to Bother You soundtrack. Hey Saturday night, entice us with the future. Say our destinies are shopping mall, but we gon' be the looters. Tell us that this feeling can't be captured by computers, and this chapter won't conclude us. We gon' get back all the good hey Saturday night.
That is Hey Saturday Night from the Coup's new album. Actually, a soundtrack for a movie created by the Coup's leader. Sorry to bother you. Boots Riley, he's a rabble-rouser from the word go. I don't think he would be averse to being termed a communist, certainly a socialist. He's a super smart guy, and uh, he's made some amazing records. I love how he's transitioned from basically being a hip-hop MC into the leader of a funk band. The Coup has turned into a mighty, mighty funk band. If you ever get a chance to see them live, you definitely should avail yourself of that opportunity. You mentioned the confusion about the similarities (laughs) between the title of this record and the one he released in 2012. I think the record that he released in 2012 under the same name, Sorry to Bother You, is a stronger record, cut for cut, than the soundtrack that he has created while he was making the movie. I think he may have been a little distracted making that movie, and with good reason. It's a fabulous movie. It's getting incredible reviews. But for the listeners who are saying, okay, I haven't seen the movie, I just want to hear this band, and in that respect, I would tell them... You're better served by going to the previous three coup records. Sorry to Bother You in 2012, Pick a Bigger Weapon in 2006, Party Music in 2001. Those are great coup records. This is a pretty good one. It's a little bit more hit and miss. It's heavy on the cameos. And what I do like about it is how he's updated the sound. He's basically taking what... Parliament Funkadelic and Sly Stone were doing in the early 70s and mid-70s that sort of political brand of funk and updating it for today. And where is that sound coming from today? Well, he's looking at people like OutKast and Janelle Monae, who's on this record, and Killer Mike, who's part of that whole Atlanta scene. I think about half of it is really strong. The other half of it, you know, I'm not so sure I buy that sort of prog funk track uh, (laughs) out and over (laughs) Sticky Sunrise. Listen to it. It it almost sounds like Styx trying to do a funk track no, or something. No, no. Those it, synths it, are a little bit, you know, it's real cheesy Clinton, on man. that. It's, it's real Clinton. I would say there's some real Clinton on, the, on this record, but that song is not one of them. I have a higher prog tolerance than you, I, and I love the movie, and so maybe I love the soundtrack more because of that. But, Greg, I think it's an inspired collaboration working with Tune Yards on those two tracks. And I think Boots has always been about breaking down genre doors and reaching out across communities. It's an album that that is for the moment that reminds us we have more in common than separates us, many of us. And uh, I like the album a lot. I think it's a great introduction to the coup. And I hope if you haven't heard them before and you only come in because of the movie, you will dig deeper. And the older coup song, The Magic Clap, that should have been a worldwide mega hit Mm. twice as big as Happy. That is a little bit of Amanda Shires with a song called Charms from her latest album called To the Sunset. Uh, Amanda is a skilled, a very skilled violin player, a teen prodigy. She was in the Texas Playboys as as a uh, youngster growing up in Texas. That is not a band that you just walk right into. That is a band full of prodigies. And uh, she has gone on to have a, a successful solo career. 
As I said, Texas-based artist originally moved to Nashville in her 20s and has uh, put out six studio albums since 2005 while doing various uh, studio sessions for other artists. Among them, her husband, Jason Isbell. She's a member of his 400-unit touring band. So she's a a distinguished career, but never really uh, a huge amount of recognition outside of a, a, a cult following until her 2016 record, My Piece of Land, uh, got her a much wider notice. And now here's the follow-up to The Sunset. Here's a track from it before we review it. It's called Break Out the Champagne from Amanda Shires on Sound Opinions. That is Break Out the Champagne by Amanda Shires on her new album, To the Sunset, the fifth of a solo career that I think's often been sadly overlooked, uh, Greg, but it is the best. Amanda has a way, uh, as, a, as a creative writing MFA, of telling a short story in every song that seems on the surface, the first three, four listens, okay, besides being wonderful musically, to be rather uh, placid and enticing and, and hooky. And then you realize there's these dark undercurrents going on. You know, the, the, the song that closes the album, Greg, Wasn't I Paying Attention, it, it's, a, it's a, a, a novel, really. It's about a man or a recovering addict who borrows a pickup truck, drives to the center of Nome, Alaska, and kills himself. And she wonders to what extent, she's playing a man in the song, to what extent she's responsible. There's those little moments like that. The opening track, Parking Lot Pirouette. You think it might just be two lovers, right? And and she's walking away from him and then does the pirouette in the parking lot and comes back. But you wonder also if there's something wrong there. Is this a relationship she should be walking away from? Last night you walked me to my car, you said you won't be I'm not done with you yet. 
I have a limited country tolerance, okay? I like my country raw and ragged and underground. I think Amanda Shire's problem's been she's in the middle. She's not quite as pop as Casey Musgraves and not quite as gritty as, as Nico Case and other bloodshot-type acts, but... A lot of her violin on this album has fuzz on it, and I love that. Put the violin in the fuzz box. I really love this record. Well, obviously. <laughs> I'm glad you do, because I, I do as well, Jim. Uh, you know, I think she's been unfairly pigeonholed as an Americana artist. You know, Americana yeah. used to be kind of cool, and I now feel it's kind of like a stereotype for acoustic folk, introspective, sad. And for that reason, I think it would be so wrong to dismiss Amanda Shires, because she's nothing like that. On this record, she's busting all of those cliches and genre stereotypes. This is a pop record, but it's also got, as you said, there's fuzzstone on this record. Yeah. There's noise on this record. You know, she used to have this, um, and she still does, this sort of vibrato-tinged vulnerability in her vocal style. You mentioned that song, Parking Lot Pirouette, and the way she sings that line, I turned around. It's Mm -hmm. like, whoa, she's (laughs) like, you know, she's not hesitant about this. This is a declaration. That, That attitude pervades this record. I'm going for it. Also, you mentioned the songwriting, Um, you know, her ability, these songs are very pithy, but she packs so much information uh, into a few lines. That song we just played, Break Out the Champagne, first couple of lines in that song are talking between bathroom stalls, Kelly said the world would end tonight. Hmm. I mean, short story writers want to open their short stories with lines like that, like, okay, I want to know what happens next. What's this all about? Uh, That's the way her songs uh, go. She is able to create these very vivid images in just a few words in her songs. So the combination of the sonic adventurousness with the great songwriter, I think Amanda Shires has made the record of her career. If people don't start paying attention now, they're just wrong. That's their loss. They need to. It is their loss. As always, we want to hear from you. Call and leave us a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Tell us what you think about those albums. Or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Coming up, we talk with Billions showrunner and screenwriter Brian Koppelman about discovering Tracy Chapman and how he transitioned from being a music talent scout to a screenwriter. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. You came at me! Because you're a criminal, Bob. And it's my job to shut him down and put him in jail. Well, if that's true, you're not very good at it. You're also full of Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Deirgatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week we are joined by our guest, Brian Koppelman. Brian's the showrunner, co-creator, and executive producer of the super acclaimed Showtime series, Billions. You heard a clip from it just a minute ago. Damian Lewis plays Bobby Axelrod, a corrupt billionaire hedge fund manager. His nemesis, Paul Giamatti, is Chuck Rhodes, a U.S. attorney for the state of New York, the sovereign district of New York, (laughs) Greg. He's hell-bent on indicting Axelrod for all sorts of crimes, but is he any less guilty himself? That's the whole show. Along with his writing partner, David Levine, Koppelman leads Billions both in incredible storytelling 
and in music. That's right, Jim. That music is incredible, and Koppelman does an incredible job of selecting songs for the series that strike the mood of the scene and elevate the show as a whole, develop these characters. It's exactly the way you want to see music used in a a long-form medium like the series. For the last 20 years, Koppelman has worked as a screenwriter co-writing films like uh, Rounders and Ocean's 13 and more. But I first met him in the early 90s when he was in the record business as an A&R guy, you know, basically a talent scout in the music industry. You know, and he's had a career there that's pretty estimable. He's worked with artists like Tracy Chapman, Metallica, uh, Five for Fighting. Uh, The list goes on and on. Let's also mention that Brian has a podcast of his own, Greg, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Is that enough buildup, Brian? Welcome to Sound Opinions. Hey, it's a thrill to be here, guys. I really never miss listening to an episode of the show. It's really important to me in my week-to-week life. So great to talk to you both. Well, wait till what you have to say after we get done interviewing <laughs> yeah. you. But, uh, uh, we, we can appreciate only deflate it. that. Yeah. We appreciate it, Brian. Uh, you, you come from a, a musical background. I mean, you were 13, right? And you're managing bands or something and producing shows. Very early age, it seemed like this was your, your, your destiny. Well, that's exactly right. My father was in the record business. He was a music publisher and sometime record producer. And I grew up really in a house that was filled with music. And I grew up going to recording studios with my father. I would listen to demos with my dad all the time. I would watch him help a producer coax a lead vocal out of a singer. And those were some of the most magical times of my life. That whole thing of living around music made it such a central part of my life and of my consciousness. And I really thought the A&R guys, my dad wasn't an A&R guy, and uh, I really thought that being an A&R person, being the person who picks the music for the label and helps make the records, would get me as close to these artists I loved, and maybe I could I could help them. And so that's what I wanted to do, and that's what I geared my whole life towards. And yeah, I started managing bands when I was young, and I started going to recording studios with, with bands when I was young. And then, as, as you probably know, when I was at college, through a fortuitous series of events, I came across Tracy Chapman and began working with her. I'm generally credited with discovering her. Give me one reason to stay here And I'll turn right back around Said I don't want to leave you lonely I mean, you were still at, at Tufts University, yes. and you, you uh, managed to get Tracy signed. Yes. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was an incredible, life-changing thing. I mean, I've uh, said this before, but it's really true. I was helping to organize an all-campus boycott of classes in order to uh, lead the divestment movement, because I'm sure you guys remember what it was like in the late 80s in colleges where they were yeah. uh, all invested their endowments in co- corporations doing business in South Africa. Yeah. And we were trying to stop that. And along the way, a friend of mine said, there's this singer you should get to play at the rally. And I went to see this singer, and it was Tracy Chapman. And she came out on stage, and she played Talking About a Revolution. Don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know, Talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper. And you got a picture being 19 years old and sitting there. Now, having a lifetime of being prepared for it. The advantages I've had, and it's something that 
I think uh, white guys in their 50s don't talk about enough. But if you were a white guy growing up when, when we did and had the added advantage, as I did, of the exposure to all this stuff, if you weren't prepared to leap at the opportunities, something was wrong with you because we were given this incredible free pass in the world. The people of color and women just weren't then in the same way. And so I was really positioned by a lifetime of thinking about this stuff and by sort of like uh, being around it to recognize what Tracy was doing. And I had the added benefit of being young and innocent in a certain way. That, that's a selfless way to describe it, uh, Brian. But the old school, I mean, you really are one of the last generation of the old school record company people, right? Yes, that's you true. Know, they all talk about having ears. Did you ever yes. consider, you know, what does that mean? That means the first time you heard talking about a revolution, you say, yeah. I had always thought about that idea of would you recognize it, could you recognize it, could you see it? And But that's only part of that job. And what happened to me is I became quickly disillusioned by the machine of the record business, which is different now, but I think there's always some version of it. The machine of the record business was something I was bad at. And part of the reason I was bad at it was I had total sympathy for the artists. And I, for whatever reason... I found myself more interested in the process of how they wrote their songs than yeah. in talking to the promotion guy about how to get the song on the radio, which made me bad at the job. I was bad the, to the very artists <laughs> that I loved. I couldn't do what they needed me to do. What they needed me to do was convince program directors to to play their records. Uh, and all I wanted to do was hang around with them and talk about whether or not the bass should be on the tonic. And that yeah. was not really what the job called for. So, Brian, you leave the music industry, you get into writing for, for TV and movies. How did you make that transition? Well, a few different things a few different things happened. I had started to get burned out and frustrated by, really, I thought I wasn't doing a very good job of balancing all these things in the way that I wanted to. And I really was not happy in the job. And then Amy, my wife, got pregnant with our first child and Sammy was born. And when he was born, I had this realization that I wanted to be the kind of father who would tell him to chase his dreams. And I realized that I wasn't. I was sitting in my office one night, and uh, I was never a cigarette smoker in my life. I got, got through 29 years of my life without ever smoking a cigarette, but I had just picked up the habit for a week. And I was smoking a cigarette in my office, and I was eating like a cheeseburger at, you know, before dinner. And I realized I was unhappy and that I had to face the fact that I was a blocked screenwriter, that I was a blocked writer and that I really wanted to do this, and that if I didn't make this change and listen to the secret calling that I had in my heart, I would become uh, something inside of me would die. And I felt like when, when something inside of you dies, like any other death, it's toxic. And I felt like that toxicity would bleed onto those people that I loved. And that instead of being a good father and husband, I'd become a bitter one. And that I had to find a way to make that change. And I went to Dave, who was my best friend. Uh, he was bartending. And I said, um, I'm ready to do this. Let's write a movie together. Uh, but I'm still blocked. I don't know how to. I don't know how to like get out of this. And he gave me a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, and I did the exercises in that book. And around that time, went into a poker club and called him in the middle of the night, and I said, "I know what the movie is." And uh, we then went into a basement and we wrote every morning before I went to work and after he bartended. And four and a half months later, we came out with this finished screenplay for Rounders. 
No Limit Texas Hold'em is the Cadillac of poker. Each player is dealt two cards face down. Five cards are then dealt face up across the middle. These are community cards everyone can use to make the best five card hand. The key to the game is playing the man, not the cards. So Rounders comes out in 1998. You go on to write Ocean's 13, which comes out in 2007. In 2016, Billions. It's sort of this uh, cat and mouse game between two alpha male characters, both trying to do what they believe is best for themselves, trying to win. It's uh, set against this backdrop of Wall Street and the hedge funds and making as much money as possible. <laughs> I want to talk about an iconic music moment in the show when you use Even the Losers by Tom Petty, season two, episode 11. I don't want to give any spoilers, but how did that come together? So that's a great one to talk about because that song, Even the Losers, was in the script right from the beginning. The moment we started writing the episode and we had the idea for what that episode would be, which is this, yeah, you're right, I don't want to spoil it, but which has a lot of reversals in it. That episode, it was clear to us, I remember writing Even the Losers into the script and knowing that that was going to be a very special part of it sitting with David and we put that in and I knew the way we were going to use that song throughout the episode and when you have that kind of a feeling it's like getting the idea for the big plot twist it's the thing that makes the whole piece have a unified voice a unified tone and what a thing to be able to get that song and use it in that spot and then because of the world we live in now to get to see people react to it. That's really interesting because the friends I have who are in the movie and television business, right, it's kind of anathema or it was for decades that you shall not dictate what the uh, songs will be, right? Usually it's like that's somebody else's job. We don't want to hear from you, showrunner, screenwriter, even director, what what the music's going to be. Well, the in t- in movies that's true that the director picks it although a screenwriter could indicate it. In television, the showrunner usually works with a music supervisor, and the music supervisor makes suggestions. But I do really give it a, a level of thought and focus. Yeah, the Showtime, they want the showrunner. I mean, look, think about how well David Chase used music sure, um, on The sure. Sopranos, or Matt Weiner used music on Mad Men. I, I think it is part of the job description. The question is, how deep is your knowledge? How obsessive are you about this stuff? And Obviously, I'm a, I'm a fanatic, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm never stopping thinking about music, listening to music, making lists of songs. You know, I have giant lists each season of songs to use so that that Dictator song that we used uh, this season uh, or the Willie DeVille song, you know, mm. what a thrill, as I'm sure it would be for you guys. What a thrill to put a Mink DeVille song yeah. Yeah. on yeah. a Sunday yeah, night that. television that cool. show. Yeah. Hey, Mr. Jim. I can see the shape you're in Finger on your eyebrow And left hand on your hip Thinking that you're such a lady killer Think you're so slick Well, all right 
more people than he ever reached, probably. <laughs> and nobody. And what's great to me is, you know, you I could see on Twitter people going, "What Lou Reed song is this?" And it's like, <laughs> uh, and then I saw people who were like, "Hey, great use of Mink Deville." And that's really satisfying to me. Well, I think what's interesting to me is we're in this golden era of TV in the way it's using music as, as a plot point, as a character development point, you know, sort of a punctuation point. It seems like television now is at a point where the music is so integral to a lot of shows, yours included, that it, it's coming from these very astute kind of uh, guys who are interested in not just cinema or TV or the visual aspects, but are deep, deep music geeks like yourself. The opportunity wasn't there is what I'm saying maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. Well, sure, you're totally right. But And, and beyond that, the fact that there is Spotify and that they're streaming iTunes and that there's Pandora means that I have at my fingertips all the music, right? Everything. But the fact of the matter is that that I'm able to go down these in a, in a way that you couldn't. How would you do it 20 years ago? How would you remember, hey, wait, I think Spanish Stroll was make the, oh, where, where do I have that album? Oh, yeah, that's, I had to move that to the, yeah. I had to move that to the story. You, how would you stumble upon, how would you find that? Yeah. You know, um, I'll tell you, like uh, one of the music cues that people loved this year, and we used a lot of new ones. I think one I'm happiest about is the song that started the last season was a song called Born in San Antonio by a guy named Garrett T. Caps, yeah. who had 1,000 streams ever before the show, and then people lost their minds at what a cool song mm. it was. I was born in San Antonio. I was born in San Antonio. I guess that's why I'm a pink jet gringo. I was born in San Antonio. And that was just something that I stumbled upon on Spotify by by just, it was in some recommendation algorithm, and that song came on, and I remember getting it and sending it to Levine immediately and going, this the, we're going to open the season with this song. I, I know exactly how to use it. And he heard it, and he was like, we already wrote the scene that goes with it. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those incredible moments that never would have happened if we didn't live now. And then he made 78 cents. <laughs> right. No, but, but he was, but, you know, you talk to that guy, and He's that happy. changed his life, yes, Jim. Uh, yes. That really changed his life, right? That guy now had millions of people hear his song. Uh, it went up the chart on whatever the thing is where people check what the song is, Shazam. And it became, he had a little moment. And then it's up to him, right, to write all the other songs and hmm. get himself to where that right. pays off. How difficult is the licensing landscape out there? Because I used to hear stories about how prohibitive it could be to use a song in a TV or movie, and, and a lot of decisions were economic ones. How much is it that a factor? And say, you've had a Dylan song in every season. We will always have a Dylan well song. Well chosen, by the way, <laughs> and in key moments. I mean, Visions of Johanna. I love that song. I love the placement of it. That must have cost a lot of money. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> well, there is. So it's not. It's not as prohibitive as it once was. But also, Showtime. We make the show for a budget. We don't go over our budget. We're good partners, and they're good partners for us. We at the beginning of this whole thing said to Showtime, "We're going to spend X on music and the show. Here's how we're going to use music. Here's why." And you guys are going to see 
that people are going to notice this and it's going to be considered a real feature of the show. And they supported that so that and then after the first season, when it was clear that people were reacting to the music in that way, when we did that stuff and it and it worked, it it created a belief in them so that. Now, there are things like Led Zeppelin we haven't been able to figure out, though some people have. We haven't been able to figure out how to get a Zeppelin song in the show yet. I can't understand how Sharp Objects has like 43 Zeppelin songs in every episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Somehow we haven't been able to like figure it out because of the way you have to get clearances with them, which is like send them the – Yeah, you have, to, seems, you have to get personal approval. Yeah, and the way we do our schedule on the show, it, it seems I- impossible. I'll tell you one that I loved, though, that I wouldn't have that, – that people really reacted to this year was uh, I Wish I Was Your Mother by Mata Hoople. That was another thing where we came across that song listening to some streaming service and hadn't heard it in a long time and knew the cover versions. And that that opportunity to match what's going on in the show to this incredible song that music people know and love, but a lot of people don't know, and then to make that marriage happen, it's a huge privilege, man. I, I can't believe I get this. You know, the music geek in me. I can't yeah. believe I get to do this. Is there one? Is there one that's broken your heart? So you haven't. You couldn't get Zeppelin, right? Ze- so no, the- you know, I think the only song we couldn't get was the Zeppelin song. Okay, all right. Uh, and then, um, I mean, another part of it is I can, and this is a benefit of having grown up in the record business and working in it till I was thirty. Is I I do have the ability to reach out to people. And you know make a special guy. request <laughs> a lot of the time. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. if it's really, yeah, uh, we made a movie called Solitary Man and used the Johnny Cash version of the Neil Diamond song. And I remember it was impossible in the studio that we made that movie for was incredibly cheap, and they wouldn't pay. But I remember the studio guitar. I remember John Leventhal, who played guitar. You know, Sean, who produced the Sean Colvin records, and is married to Roseanne Cash. And I remember that I worked with John on a session once in the in the '90s, and I wrote him and reminded him and then he asked Roseanne and then Roseanne asked her brother and then her brother was like okay I can figure out how to get you guys the master recording and so you have to be super rich. like I'll use anything I have to to try to get the song if there's no other way to do don't know that I will but until I can find me a girl who'll stay and won't play games behind me I'll be what I am, a solitary man. When we come back, Brian Koppelman shares more behind-the-scenes information about Billions and reveals the secrets to his creative success. Plus, Greg and I will take a trip to the desert island. What are you bringing this time, Greg? Jim, earlier in the show we played some music by The Coup. I'm going to play an artist that heavily influenced the making of The Coup and their aesthetic. Excellent. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. We are strong. The only currency that this firm has, that any firm has these days, is its winning streak. The Kevlar of knowing the answer. You break that, you break the whole thing. Nobody leaves here until you hand me an idea that I can shock the world with in a few days' time. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And that's a clip from the Showtime series Billions, co-created and run by our guest this week, Brian Koppelman. I wanted to know how Brian's past experiences as a screenwriter and director using music affected how he sees and uses music in Billions. Yeah, you of course, each time you go, you learn... First of all, I guess it's watching movies, right? I mean, being obsessed by movies and music uh, and books, that, you know, those things in comedy were like the things that I was obsessed about and geekish about and the pathetic New York Knicks for my whole life. And so, yeah, you're, you're constantly studying and refining. I think what happened, though, is in the fourth episode of the first season of Billions, we used the Andrew Bird song, Oh No. In the philosophy remains of what was stopped and said, all the calcified arithmetists were doing the math. And it would take a calculated blow to the head to light the eyes of all the homeless sociopaths. And I remember finding the song and figuring out we could use it to begin and end the episode and that the psychopath's line worked really well with what we were talking about on the show. And I remember David and I putting it up in the editing room and watching it, and that was really the roadmap. It was on the fourth episode when it locked in, and, and it, it was a light bulb moment for us where it was like, this is how we're going to use music. This is the way that we're going to deploy these songs so that something in the way that the guitars are played or something in the drums or something in the lyrics has to has to strike off the stuff happening on screen so that its resonance uh, echoes, you know, so that its resonance grows. And that if we, if we are obsessive enough to not stop until we create those moments, we would have the chance to make a show that would have um, an impact. And that, that was the moment that crystallized it. Interesting. You know, I also think the choices are are unconventional, like they're not exactly super obvious. Like I thought a key scene for you, I think it was in the last season when Taylor, Taylor is this non-binary character. I mean, that's a gender uh, non-binary. Yeah. Taylor Mason played by Asia Kate Dillon is a gender non-binary uh, character. Yeah. Amazing, amazing character, amazing addition to the show. The twist that goes on involving Taylor uh, the the track that you chose was the Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen, and there's yes. a, actually there's a conversation between the characters about that song, and how they both connect to it, uh, yes. which wouldn't be the first song I'd say when, you know, like you're gonna have a romantic moment, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It struck me like, wow, that's cool. Uh, was that was, so? Are you making those musical choices and then writing the scene, or does the scene sort of inspire the song choice? How, do, how does that work? I remember that. So Dave and I have a writing staff, some of whom write the first draft of episodes, and some of whom write episodes. And the writer of that episode had written that scene based on you know us all outlining it together, and he'd written the draft of the scene and then wrote. And a song plays that Brian and Dave will pick because you didn't want to put the <laughs> thing in there. And I, uh, I remember sitting with David 
and we were kicking ideas back and forth, and uh, I said, Killing Moon. And Dave immediately went, yes, oh my God, Killing Moon. And then we played it in the room, you know, and uh, read the scene while Killing Moon. As we, we, we rewrote that scene, and then as we did, and we put Killing Moon on in the room, it was just like clear. And then, you know, we had to find the perfect turntable. So then our prop person <laughs> went and searched out the perfect, the perfect turntable. And then... We, yeah, we wrote that dialogue where they're talking about, can I put this on? Yeah, you know, it's exactly what I would have chosen. And we just had this feeling that then that song would suffuse the whole episode with mm. a certain tone and mm-hmm. a certain mood. Fate up against your will Through the thick and thin He will wait until You give yourself to And, uh, and it plays at the end of the episode, too, and it, it really works. But, but often we're trying many, many ideas. Once in a while, you'll, you'll get something like Sammy Davis Jr. Bojangles, which that also came right at the beginning. The moment we thought of that, <laughs> um, the moment a writer said, what if we do this thing in a cemetery? I just put on Bojangles, and I was like, what if this play? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and everyone was like, what? With the whistling? Oh, my God. You know. A newer man, Bojangles in. He danced for you in one-out shoes. It's incredible, but it it does feel like a lifetime's pursuit of loving music so much. Like I, I can't tell you guys, and this is why I'm so obsessed with your show, is that you know, listening to people who feel about music the way I do, and that's why I've tweeted a few times, you know. I, I'm equally happy when I'm disagreeing with you, except on the Captain Beefheart uh, episode of the show. <laughs> someday and you then may, I wasn't happy. You then may I was grow not up. Happy. You may grow up someday, Brian, but to appreciate then the, the Captain. Not happy. Brian, switching gears, I've got a, a guilty pleasure for you, if you'll indulge me. We talked earlier about your work in the record business before movies and TV, and your dad was was famous in the business. Charles Koppelman was the uh, K of SBK Records. He executive produced Wilson Phillips' debut in 1990. So Carney and her sister Wendy Wilson, China Phillips, I am a huge fan of that band. When are we getting a Wilson Phillips reunion? Can I tell you, they are the loveliest people. Okay, so I went to an exercise class in New York, and I found out that the instructor uh, had just been battling cancer, and she played Hold On in the class. She didn't know that I knew those people. This Mm. just happened two months ago. And she was crying. This woman was really saying, I I have my final chemo. This is the power of, of music and an amazing thing. She said, I have my final chemo session tomorrow, and this song I play at the beginning and end of every chemo session and that's what gets me through and she played Hold On. Someday somebody's gonna make you wanna turn around and say goodbye, say goodbye. Until then, baby Are you gonna let him hold you down and make you cry? Don't you know? Don't you know? Things are changing And because of what I do now and because of what I did then, um, I have a decent reach, you know. Um, and so I was able to write China Phillips' husband, Billy Baldwin. I told him what happened. And Billy told China, and 
two days later, I get, and I said to Billy, would it be possible to send a signed picture? I would love to hand this woman a signed picture mm. saying, you know, hold on. Instead, China got Wendy and Carney, and they sang a version of Hold On for this woman. Oh, Not my for God. anybody's, wow. not, not, never for it to redound back to their benefit. They just made an iPhone tape and sent it to me wanting nothing so that I could send it to this woman. And uh, you wouldn't think that pop stars, you know, even pop stars who are past where they're, they have that kind of currency would do that kind of thing. But I have found musicians to be, and it's part of why I love musicians so much, I find them to be so generous, so giving of their art. And if they know that they can do something that doesn't cost them a lot and it will have great benefit, I find them incredibly willing to do it. And mm. it's, it's one of the things that never ceases to move me. Brian, I wanted to wrap up the interview by asking you uh, your advice for all our listeners out there who have creative aspirations and maybe they don't know how to achieve them. Earlier, you mentioned the book The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron as the thing that really helped you reach the goal of becoming a successful screenwriter. Uh, The gist of it is dream big, apply rigor, and take some sort of action every day to get you closer to your goal. What have you done today, Brian? Well, I'm, ta- I'm talking to you guys. This oh, is a- yeah. oh, many a star has <laughs> no, been made you know what, on Sound You know what opinions. I do every day? I'll just say, for anyone out there, for anyone listening who like has some dream that most people would say was insane, which, you know, every single artist that you guys play on your show, every woman who picked up a guitar, every man who sat down at the piano had an unrealistic dream, an impossible idea that what they had to say or what they had to play mattered and meant something and might mean something to somebody else. This This message of the ability to transcend your limitations and what you believe are your limitations. Yeah. And uh, so, but what I do every day is every day I journal and every day I take a long walk and every day I meditate. And I do those things to get out of my conscious head, the conscious head that's telling me, who am I to think that I can do this special stuff? Who am I to think that my what's in my imagination matters? And if I do those things, I can get the negative voices out of my head and I can center myself to move forward for the day. And so that's what I, that's what I did today and that's what I do every day. And listen to a lot of great music. We have been talking to Brian Koppelman here on Sound Opinions, uh, writer, producer, brilliant music lover, fan of Sound Opinions. That's the only flaw in his armor. Brian, thanks for coming on our show. What a pleasure. Thanks, guys. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and put a quarter in the jukebox playing you a song we can't live without. Greg, uh, having tipped us that this has something to do with the coup, I'm eager to hear what you got. Yes, Jim. Well, uh, you know, I was inspired uh, not only by the coup, but also uh, hearing this song performed, uh, not by the original artist, but by a a band called Duran Jones and the Indications at the Lollapalooza Festival here in Chicago, in Grant Park. I really enjoyed Lollapalooza, despite some of my best instincts. I think you are nuts. It turned out to be a... uh, 
a fascinating experience. Some of the some of the bands that I saw and the, and the experience interacting with the audience changed the tone of that festival in a lot of ways for me. And Duran Jones and the Indications, though, I think uh, ran away with the weekend by performing this song. It is a song originally written and produced by Curtis Mayfield, the great Chicago artist. Don't worry, if there's a hell below, we're all going to go. And the reason it resonated so much with me and I think everybody else who saw it was that we were just waking up to the news of these horrible shootings across Chicago. Dozens of people killed or wounded. And it was just staggering to hear that coming down to the festival and then to hear this song so directly address a lot of the issues that are going on in this city that Curtis Mayfield was writing about, you know, 40 years ago. Mayfield, uh, as many people know, was uh, the guy who helped write the soundtrack for the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. with the impressions in the 60s. And Superfly. And Superfly. And a lot of people, if they think about his 70s music, when he basically was a solo artist... He had put the uh, the impressions to bed. Was is Superfly, and if not that, maybe let's do it again. The great mm. uh, song that he wrote for the Staple Singers, which was a two million selling uh, single in the mid seventies. Both you know both of these things, uh, both of these works associated with movies. But his solo debut, Curtis, simply titled Curtis in nineteen seventy, really changed the direction of his career. If you think about the impressions, there was a, a grace to that music, an elegance almost in that soulfulness. There was a power in it, but also a sense of, you know, we're going to uplift everyone. I don't think Curtis changed his mindset when he began his solo career, but there was a lot more edge to it. And you can really hear it. This is the opening track from his solo record. Don't worry, if there's a hell below, we are all going to go. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so, and hearing Duran Jones and the Indications play this, this, this song couldn't have been more potent and, and timely. You know, that fuzz bass in this mm. song, you talk about, you know, bringing it. That, would, that doesn't sound like anything like the impressions. You got that land percussion, those wah-wah guitars, the strings. He was laying the blueprint for what became the, uh, the Superfly soundtrack yeah. uh, in this song. Uh, the, the refrain is, don't worry. And he's basically saying, yeah, we better worry. And he's calling out brothers and sisters, blacks and whites, get your act together. We're killing each other, but we need to respect each other. And if we don't, we're all going to go up in flames. A powerful message from Curtis Mayfield that still resonates today. Don't worry. There's a hell below. We are all going to go on Sound Opinion.
The one and only Curtis Mayfield, Greg's Desert Island Jukebox pick. I love the title, Greg. If there's a hell below, don't worry, we're all going to go. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're talking to the co-founder of metal band Mastodon, Braun Daler. You can find all our episodes at soundopinions.org and subscribe to our podcasts wherever you get those things. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Ayana Contreras, Andrew Gill, and our intern is Hannah Edgar. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, I'm Rajetta. I'm from Detroit, and I live about three blocks from Aretha's father's church. I was 10 years old when I first heard her sing Rockabye Baby with a Dixie Melody on 8 Mile Road. And in the projects there, everybody was talking about this girl named Reese. When you croon, croon a tune from the heart of Dixie. But what she represents to me is a baseline that you can always go back to and find whatever strength you need. In the Bible, wherever you find strength, you'll find song nearby. She embodied that. She was an instrument encapsulated in a black woman's body. And black women know how often you hear a mother singing from the kitchen in the spiritual, low, beautiful timbres. She took it outside the home and she put it on wax. The reason why so many Americans can relate to her is they can relate to the black woman's music, the voice that only we have. That's all I'm saying. My name is Patrick. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Your show on Aretha Franklin was absolutely wonderful. I've been an Aretha fan for my entire life and uh, was a cashier at a grocery store in 1967 while I was still in high school and we were all rocking out to respect. We are in mourning here in Detroit. Again, thank you for the tribute for this icon and this woman who represents our city so very well. Hi guys, this is Chris from Chicago. Just uh, calling in about your program on the late, great Aretha. Uh, as a lifelong fan, I, I learned a few new things and, and appreciated that. But I disagree about you dismissing her Arista years. I really think that she had good quality cuts on a lot of those albums. And, you know, during those Arista years, she had excellent taste in collaborators like uh, Mary J. Blige, John Legend, and Lauren Hill. So they pulled her in a modern direction, but no matter what, she still had the Aretha sound. She will be missed. Yes,
My name is Jamisa Euler. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm calling in reference to the passing of Aretha Franklin. I just heard this incredible segment. The song that really touched me the most was when she was asked to sing at the Grammys. I saw it live on television and witnessed something that is unparalleled in performance. I was so proud as an African-American woman to witness the level of talent. There will never be another Aretha Franklin, and I am very sad but happy that she's no longer suffering. She was a gift to all of us. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.